This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Holy Donors Podcast, a new podcast from Petrus Development, bringing you stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Check it out at holydonors.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week and twice this week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, tell them why we're having this bonus episode. Well, we're here to talk about the apparently pending overthrow of Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. We are here to talk about the apparently... Which is news, yes. See, I thought you. Ha- I thought that that was a period, but it was a, it was an M dash, and so then I jumped in, and it seemed like I was jumping over you. Sorry about that. That's uh, all right. We- I lay these little rhetorical traps for you throughout oh. the podcast, which is why you have the reputation for always talking over me. Don't think I don't know it. Um, we are here to talk about the. <laughs> we are here to talk about the uh, the apparently reportedly soon to be overturned uh, Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey decisions, which would be overturned uh, potentially this summer in a decision by Supreme Court justices uh, over a case in Mississippi pertaining to um, in uh, an, uh, a 15 week abortion ban. Is that right? That is that is correct. Yes. And um, while uh, while there has been anticipation that this would be a decision that could overturn Roe versus Wade, um, I don't know about you, Ed, but I didn't um, I didn't believe it until I believed it, as it were. Well, it's kind of you to say you don't know about me, but I think you do know about me. I have been and you have frequently checked me on this podcast for my, I think it's fair to say, naked skepticism that such a decision would would come forward. But I was apparently very, very wrong. I did not expect anything like a decision as definitive and sweeping as apparently we are we are due to get. I I got it wrong. Well, let's talk about what's happened and how we've gotten here, and then we'll jump in a little bit to talking about um, some of the ways in which we uh, see this uh, impacting the life of the church, which is what we talk about on this show. All right, then. How do we get here, Ed? Uh, well, we got here really at the tail end of a, I guess— four-year period now i think i think four years is a good maybe a little bit longer than four four and a half anyway a a a period of time uh, over which states were passing various attempts to restrict abortion within their borders and each one of them really had more than an eye on trying to get to the supreme court in the hopes of affecting a change and an overturn of roe v wade these abortion laws came in the form of the, the law that's currently under review now, uh, which, as you said, uh, proposes a 15-week abortion ban. We had similar attempts in places like, uh, I think, Texas. We had, um, uh, I think, uh, there were a couple of states that attempted to pass heartbeat laws that would have banned abortion after the detection of a fetal heartbeat, which is usually around six to eight weeks, I think. We had some laws that a- attempted to be a kind of um, Russian doll of abortion restrictions mm-hmm. where they would have different tiers of restrictions with different legal rationales attached to them for different stages of pregnancy. And the idea was that these would be in a way uh, appeal proof that an appellate court might be able to strike down one or other of its provisions or layers, but wouldn't be able to craft a decision that could knock them all down at the same time. And all of this was part of, I think, a a sort of World War One style infantry advance of state level legislation where just everybody got out of their trench and started charging the enemy lines in the hope that something would get through. And in this case, something did get through, it seems. Dobbs. Dobbs is what got through. Indeed. 
And so, what is the what is the uh, what is the law that the Supreme Court is actually considering uh, at the moment? Well, it's it's considering whether or not you can effectively ban abortion after 15 weeks of gestation, if I've understood it correctly. That's exactly right. It's considering a 2018 Mississippi law that bans, um, as you say, most abortions that occur after. Uh, after 15 weeks of pre- uh, pregnancy and um and and uh and and there could have been um you know there there had been a lot of talk about the po- the prospect of the Supreme Court sort of using this decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh that wasn't the only thing that um had to have ha- you know that had to have happened. Uh, the Supreme Court of course could have sort of overturned um this Mississippi law and uh, and upheld Roe versus Wade or um found some found some new sort of standard um uh for um the the legality of abortion or to regulate the legality of abortion um within states um if it had wanted to finding some sort of um uh, uh via media um or uh, it could have overturned Roe versus Wade and of course uh, earlier this month out of the Supreme Court leaked a February draft of an opinion written by um Justice Sam Alito that um would do exactly that overturn Roe versus Wade and its finding of a of um a constitutional protection uh, for abortion. And um, you have been skeptical of this. I have been skeptical of this. I think that most people, uh, I, I expect, maybe it's just me, but I expect that most people have been skeptical of this. I have been hearing, you know, people, pro-life people say, like, I feel like my entire adult life, well, Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned in your lifetime. I never thought it would happen in my lifetime, but it'll definitely happen in your lifetime. And I ha- I have never never believe that. And yet here we are on the on the precipice of it. And I, I feel like, first of all, we should just take a moment to consider how significant that is. This is something which has shaped a debate that has been central to certainly the life of Catholics um, for, for nigh on these last f- almost 50 years. But it's also something which has uh, allowed for legal protection for abortion and the consequent abortion of millions of people here in these United States. Uh, I, I would go further and say it hasn't just shaped the debate. It's actually stopped the debate hmm. that it has at best perverted and warped and distorted the debate around abortion in this country. That um, and it, So one of the things I find most um, striking in the immediate aftermath of all this, uh, in addition to sort of the ructions in American civil society, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, um, but it, sort of amongst the the sort of intelligentsia's response to the possibility of Roe v. Wade being vacated is it, it begins when they have to engage when pro-abortion types in the media, in politics, in culture have to engage with the reality or the potential reality of a post-real world and what that means, which you know doesn't mean a ban on abortion nationwide, but means returning it to the state level looking at what kind of restrictions could be on abortion at a state level and having to discuss it in less than absolute terms uh, really flummoxes a lot of people, which I I find hilarious. I find it amazing how ignorant most people on the so-called pro-choice side of the debate are about the realities of abortion and also where, where the rest of the world falls on this. Yeah. You know, for people who understand what abortion means and understand the the appalling mechanics of abortion in the later stages of pregnancy. This is all well known to us, but people in this country don't seem to have any real understanding that, you know, what they consider to be um, the fundamental right to choose is something that the rest of the world, certainly, for example, Western Europe would consider to be absolute barbarism. 
And, and I find that remarkable because, you know, in Europe, the, the European press, um, if you read the European press coverage in The Times, in Le Monde, in, um, you know, whatever other newspapers you may read, uh, they they have greeted the potential overturning of Roe with horror as this great, you know, reversal of liberal values in the United States. And how could this happen? But then, of course, no one in Europe understands what abortion law in America actually means. Everyone in Europe just assumes that abortion law in America is more or less what it is in Europe, which is that abortion is more or less widely available in the early weeks of pregnancy, uh, available with, you know, sort of medical recommendation and supervision in the sort of towards the middle of the pregnancy. And then after 20, 22, in some cases, 24 weeks, not available and would be considered grotesque and infanticide thereafter, right. mm-hmm. even amongst hardline abortion defenders, which I, whom I have debated in past lives. I've, you know, I've gone on, you know, if you think NPR is pro-abortion, try the BBC. I've, I've gone on, you've seen debated with people who were fiercely pro-abortion and they were shocked to discover that in some places in the United States, you could abort a child when it was ready to be birthed. Um, and in this country, people are finding out that, you know, no, they are not defending a, a quote unquote right to choose as it is recognized anywhere else in the world, apart from, I think, North Korea. Um, and so the, the ignorance of the debate uh, about what abortion actually entails is uh, amongst the sort of pro-choice side of things has been has been really remarkable. And I think it's only going to get more so. And and I realize I'm monologuing at this point, J.D., and I apologize for that. But um, what I think we have seen is because Roe has provided this smokescreen for so many years of, well, do you support Roe? And Roe has successfully been uh, read into people's, read into the public consciousness in such a way as Roe means the possibility of legal abortion. Um, do you support Roe gets overwhelming returns? Yes. In opinion polls, but people don't understand what Roe is, um, right. whether you're a columnist in Le Monde or whether you're, uh, you know, the average voter in upstate New York who identifies as a Democrat. Um, you just associate the idea of Roe with the idea of some kind of legal abortion. But actually, the vast majority of American public opinion, which we're constantly told supports Roe and supports a woman's right to choose, so-called, uh, does not at all support the kind of late-term abortions that Roe allows and that many of our political leaders are insisting be enshrined in national law. So I think we are due for a great unmasking um, if we should see the overturning of Roe. We're going to see people actually having to defend the kind of practices which have been kept in the shadows under the sort of blanket guise of, well, if you're against this, you're against Roe, and if you're against Roe, you're against abortion full stop, and you're just one of those crazy pro-life headbangers. So that's going to be very interesting to see unfold. I think you're right. I think with Roe versus Wade overturned and the regulation of abortion returned to the states, um, you might see what, what I would like to say is, well, you might see policies which begin to reflect more concretely pe- the opinions that people say they have about abortion when they're polled and really, um, and, and, and that's really dug in, which is that there are people who uh, say that abortion should be banned at 20 weeks, people who say that abortion should be banned at 15 weeks, people who say that abortion should be banned at six weeks. There are some people who say that abortion should be banned, you know, completely. And, and of course, you would see states um, where there, where that would be a sort of vi- <laughs> a, a live sort of political movement. Um, but uh, but well, there's, it's a political reality. And I think it's, what is it, 15 states have trigger laws that will affect residual. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think there are some where it would be where, where that's not sort of determined, where I think that would be sort of an, an ongoing political consideration or or um, a sort of ongoing effort. But 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 what I wanted to say is um, 
I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that by returning the decision about abortion to states, you will begin to see sort of more policies which are rooted in um, uh, sort of compromise or which aim to sort of reflect the middle of uh, of what Americans say about abortion because um, uh, ab- abortion is such an extremely polarized issue and because no one – there's no political incentive um, for people who are sort of running – to uh, to to play to the middle, the the political incentive is to to sort of play towards um, absolute abortion on on demand, and and you can see this right in the career of Joe Biden. The, the political sort of motivation is to play towards absolute um, abortion on demand, or or not at all. And obviously, uh, I fall completely and entirely into the not at all camp, and so. Um, I, you know, I, I think, as I suspect you do too, that abortion should be in, entirely and, and absolutely illegal. And and uh, and what I mean by that is um, the moral act which we call abortion. That obviously things, you know, that there are um, edge cases that have to do with ectopic pregnancies or um, in a you know a, a threat of life to the mother that don't sort of qualify into the moral consideration there. But I, I by and large, I think that abortion should be legal at all times and. Anything that I would call abortion, I think, should be illegal at all times, and uh, and so. Um, but um, obviously, um, so obviously, that's sort of what I would like to see. But I I think it's interesting because what we'll end up with is not um, a resolution of political debate after Roe versus Wade is overturned, but just political debate in in more places. And I do think that's good because I think it allows for the possibility of. Um, places which have a preponderance of people who oppose abortion to um, significantly limit or ban abortion. Um, But I think anyone who thinks, well, what we're going to see now is sort of um, more civility about abortion is just absolutely out of their mind. Well, there will be no, there will definitely not be an increased amount of civility. (laughs) Right. Um, For sure, there will not. We will, we will see the sort of demented, uh, swivel-eyed, head-rotating, vomiting, green, demonic, crazy that you would expect from um, a bunch of people that are, frankly, demonic in their in their aims and in their And to be clear, desires. I'm not saying that I think that we, what we should be aiming for is more civility about abortion. I think that what we should be aiming for is a, um, a, a total prohibition on, on abortion because abortion I, is a grave I, moral evil. Well, but, I agree, uh, but I think you can stamp out a grave moral evil in a civilized way. <laughs> My point is, I'm not saying that civility is the absolute goal. We're going down a weird road here. I'm just trying to say I'm not saying that civility is the absolute goal. But I do, you know, I do think what will happen is we will have states where there is clarity about abortion um, uh, in, in favor of its prohibition. There is clear. There, there are states where there is a consen- you know, sure. consensus about. Um, but but here's here's what I think is worth considering. Thank you, because I was just in a weird hole there. You were. Um, so let me let me try and. Let me try and write you on, write, write you on a train of thought that I think you'll enjoy. Um, you will, you will have these states that we've said have trigger laws, and some of them are are holdover laws from prior right. to Roe v. Wade that have never repealed. Right. But some of them are new laws that have been passed in anticipation of a repeal of Roe v. Wade. We've seen constitutional amendments outlawing abortion passed at the state level in a couple of states. I think, I think Tennessee is one of them. I, I'd have to check. Um, but anyway, we have seen in recent years states gearing up for the possibility of a repeal of Roe v. Wade and putting trigger laws in place. These mm-hmm. are not all antiquated holdovers. Some of them are current. And right. Tennessee is indeed one of them. You're correct. Frothing sir. at the mouth, getting ready right. to do this, which is great. You will see, I would expect, probably also 10 to 15 states. Uh, some of them have already done this. Massachusetts is definitely one of them um, because everything terrible happens in Massachusetts, if not first, at least in the first five. Yes. Um, it passed the opposite trigger laws. Yes. Enshrining in total abortion in their state constitution 
uh, in the event of the repeal of Roe v. Wade. And you will see that also happen in New York, California, um, uh, Illinois, probably. Uh, I think Denver is making a pitch Colorado for that. Has, no, Colorado has done it already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you will see an equal number, I would say, of states that go the other way and have yeah. trigger laws ready to go that will basically say, we would like all of the abortion, please. We would never right. like another child to make it to term in our state. And right. we will fly women here to assist them in the killing well, of their they children. They don't even have to because Medicaid's going to do it. Well, Medicaid, well or Amazon or Tesla. <laughs> right, or, exactly. I mean, it's just know, crazy. There will be no shortage of corporate sponsorship for the for the ending of the life of your unborn child. I'm, I, Yeah. Welcome to Joe Biden's America. Um, anyway. That you will have those, but the the other twenty states in the middle are going to have to fight it out and decide what they want from abortion law. And they're not going to have absolute uh, state legislatures, certainly not absolute um, majorities in in the voting populace to affect an absolute ban or an absolute enshrinement. They're going to have to negotiate some kind of settlement. No, and, I don't think so. I don't think well, so. There's going to be all the money is going to go there, uh, you know, for it to be I, I understand all the money is going to go to game. I, I didn't say it was going to be polite and I didn't say it was going to be <laughs> civilized. I just said they're going to have to fight it out. Yes. I, I'm not suggesting they're all going to sit down at the table and say, well, let's come to an equitable compromise. I'm suggesting it's going to be bleeding Kansas. But yes, that's it, what it I'm is, saying. Yes. Yes. I'm agreeing with you. But my point is they're going to have to hash it out. Yeah. They're not going to allow a, vac- a legal vacuum. Right. So they're going to have to do something. And in the process of doing that, they're going to have to talk about degrees of abortion. Now, of course, every abortion is the ending of an innocent human life. I'm not suggesting that this is a good thing to have incremental change or whatever. What we want is never another abortion ever. Absolutely. But my point is already reflected in all of the polling you want to look at, whether it's from Pew, whether it's from Rasmussen, it doesn't matter. Quinnipiac, YouGov, doesn't matter. Look at it. And the people will say, yes, I'm in favor of Roe. Oh, well, are you in favor of abortion through all nine minutes? Well, no, of course not. No, of course I'm not in favor of that. Oh, well, are you in favor of abortion past, say, 20 weeks, 22 weeks, at which point the baby is usually perfectly able to survive outside of the womb? Uh, no, no, I'm not really cool with that. Oh, oh, interesting. At what point, you know, and then you have the, there was a Rasmussen poll I read that said, you know, asked people about the, the heartbeat loss when they were being brought in and said, well, do you support a ban on abortion after six to eight weeks of pregnancy? And you've got the usual supermajority saying, no, of course not. That's, you know, that's way too soon. Right. And they said, well, do you support banning abortion after you can detect a fetal heartbeat? Yes, I do support that. Oh, well, Okay, then you do the sort of great unveiling of, you know, under curtain A and under curtain B. Well, it turns out you can detect a fetal heartbeat at six to eight weeks of pregnancy. So knowing that, which do you pick of your two previous things that you say you are in favor of? And people as a majority said, well, if you can detect a fetal heartbeat at six to eight weeks, then yeah, I'm in favor of banning abortion after six to eight weeks. So the more education there is on this, the more people move closer and closer and closer to, I don't want any abortion. They go from oh, I support Roe, which means unfettered abortion all the time, to, well, no, I, I don't support it at nine months, to, no, well, I don't support it past 20 to 24 weeks, to, no, I actually don't support it past six to eight weeks. And you, you see what I'm saying. I, I do see more, what you're saying. The more public debate and the more public education there is about abortion, the more the abortion lobby loses ground. And so the entire, um, all of the money and all of the splenetic vitriol that you are predicting accurately that will be thrown at this at the state level is going to be to obfuscate the issue yes, to not right, allow right, there mm-hmm. to be any actual 
discussion of what abortion means at the different stages of pregnancy. And that's to, why it's that's why the sloganeering is about um, uh, taking away women's right to choose, want to control women's bodies, want to take away women's autonomy. Our next coming. I mean, you have seen this rhetoric. Well, um, I have. The, Apparently, if you're in favor of overturning Roe v. Wade, your next legislative goal is banning interracial yeah, marriage. Interracial right? marriage, right? Right. Yeah. You, you have seen I, this rhetoric. What? And I all have. of that is about obfuscation, and it's and it is. It is perpetrated by a small group, but an extremely pow- politically well, powerful. Not a small group, JD. They're in the majority of the House of Representatives. Uh, relatively speaking, to where most Americans land on this, but it is an extremely politically powerful group, as you yourself have just um, have just demonstrated. Such that, if anyone wants to be in the majority of the House of Representatives, you know, if anyone wants to be in the current party of the majority of the House of Representatives, um, this becomes sort of a, 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 a de facto necessity. All right, you said that. And I agree with you. And we have talked at length and written at length at different times and in different places about Joe Biden's Damascene conversion to absolute yes. pro-abortion from having been opposed to, other, amongst other things, Roe v. Wade mm-hmm. at previous times in his political career. But I wrote a thing last week about the possibility of the overturning of Roe v. Wade opening the door to the return of the pro-life Democrat as a species, which is on the endangered list. I believe there is currently only one left in the House of Representatives. And you, I am judging from your general facial expression and demeanor and things that you have said are skeptical. Of I, I'm listening. This. I'm listening, man. Yeah. Okay. So here's my thinking. We are aware, you are aware, that there is a state in this union where if you want to be elected to statewide office, you have to be a pro-life Democrat. You're just not going to get voted in any other way, right? No. Oh, are you not as familiar with the great state of Louisiana as I am? I am, but I think that's a I think that's an overstatement. I do not think it is the case that if you want to be elected to office in Louisiana, you have to be a pro-life Democrat. I think there is more room in Louisiana in the no, Louisiana. Not, not any office, but if you want to be governor of Louisiana, is I don't that think so? you is that so, I, or is it just show that me the, the last the, pro-abortion governor of Louisiana of either party? I don't think you can find one. Well, now, buddy, I I kind of want to look because I I don't Go know whether it. John Bell Edwards happens to be a pro-life Democrat. Or whether John Bell Edwards is, as governor of of, uh, of Louisiana, is sort of by necessity uh, pro life, or which rather to say, the governor of Louisiana is necessarily pro life. I I, I don't think, believe that a pro abortion Democrat could get elected governor of Louisiana. I, I just don't know enough to know if that's true. So I, I'm okay. going to give it to you. All right, even if you, I'll, I'll I'll rephrase. There is a state in the union where currently pro life Democrats occupy the positions of power in the state and are in no way ostracized from the state democratic party. In fact, they are in control of it. Agree with that? Oh, guess what? What? Before John Bell Edwards was governor of Louisiana, who was governor of Louisiana? Do you remember? Bobby Jindal. Bobby Jindal. Do you remember who was governor of Louisiana before um, Bobby Jindal? Oh, oh, come on. This was like 12 years ago. Um... A woman named Kathleen Blanco. And, okay. and and I was just looking at Kathleen Blanco's political positions because I was somewhat skeptical about what you were saying. But it turns out, Ed, that Kathleen Blanco, Democrat, um, signed into law the Louisiana trigger bill, trigger law that will take effect if Roe versus Wade is overturned. So How about um, that? There you have some strong support for your position. Yes. Um, yeah. Yes. While you enjoy those apples, I will continue with my thought experiment. Um, the, my point is that there's already a state in which there is overwhelming pro-life sentiment. And if you want to be governor of Louisiana, you got to be pro-life. 
And if you're the state Democratic Party of Louisiana, you don't want to cede the governor's mansion for forever on the point of absolutist abortion principle because that pleases the clowns at the DCCC. You are going to work with the people in your state who are the ones who can get elected and who actually represent the demographics at the state level. And that is pro-life. Now, if there are other states in the union, like Louisiana, that are overwhelmingly pro-life, and suddenly they are able to impose the kind of bans on abortion that the people in the state, Republican and Democrat alike, want, I don't think the Democratic Party is just going to write those states off and say, well, sorry, we only do pro-maximalist pro-abortion candidates, so we're never going to see anyone else elected in states like Tennessee, Texas, Places mm-hmm. like that, you know, we're just going to write those states off. Forget it. We're not going to bother fielding credible candidates for governor. We are, you know, we're going to just you know, forget about so it. So this not- whole thing moves sort of the Overton window of uh, for, for pro-life. In Democrats. those states, it's going to have to. And if you have, and I believe it's not impossible to see um, states that will return a pro a solidly pro-life Democrat to statewide office, not all of them will and not every time, but where they'll be in the hunt and there will be, you know, this uh, abortion would be effectively a neutral issue in a race for governor in which there were two equally pro-life candidates from either party, then all of a sudden whole parts of the electoral map for the democratic party start getting seated with state parties. They're like, no, we are, we're pro-life here. Or if we're not pro-life, we're certainly open to pro-life members and give them an equal voice. We can't exclude them. And how much of the Democrats, uh, national absolutist pro-abortion position is if is in effect allowed to continue because of Roe v. Wade, or they say, look, it's a dead issue. You either support Roe v. Wade or you don't, because it's not a it's not a live legal issue in your state. You can't do anything in your state. So take the pledge or don't get the money. And I think that the balance of power is going to shift as a result of this. It's not going to shift everywhere and it's not going to shift all at once. But I think little by little you're going to see the Louisiana model replicated in other of the 15 trigger law states that will ban abortion right away. You're going to see they're going to be Democrats and say, well, wait a minute. I I don't happen to want maximalist pro-abortion policies, and I don't happen to agree with the state Republican Party. Or I don't want what? this to be a sine qua non with my with with yeah. my constituency. It's just not important enough for me to be. Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. little by little, that's going to eat away. And you're going to get to the point where you're not going to be able to have uh, the absolute position of the Democratic Party that you've had. I mean, there are guys like Dan Lipinski in the south side of Chicago still going to get primaried to death sure. by pro-abortion um, Planned Parenthood shills? Absolutely. Sure. But you know what? That's Illinois politics and that's Chicago politics. And that's absolutely the South side of Chicago politics. Um, I'm, I'm not saying this is going to be, this is going to hold everywhere and for everyone, but I do think it's going to bring in a kind of, um, a kind of pro-life Democrat back in some parts of the country. I do think we'll see it. I, I can dig it. I think you make a convincing case for that. There are a few more things I want to talk about, uh, Ed, and we will be right back after this word from our sponsor. You know, Ed, um, One of the things that has um, inspired or encouraged me in my own Christian life, and especially my decisions about what to do with the money that God has blessed uh, me with or with my family with, is to hear stories of other people's radical generosity in ways that have changed the world using um, the resources that they have, the financial resources God has given them for the sake of um, building up the kingdom or um, performing works of mercy or um, helping to to strengthen the, the mission of the church. Absolutely. It is. I mean, the the charism, I think you could almost call it, of uh, being of giving until it hurts, of giving what the Lord has given you 
to the service of the church, to the service of the poor, uh, and you know, towards a particular apostolic service is 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 a real part of life in the society of the church. I mean, you can think of people like um, Catherine Drexel, who you know had a long struggle and discernment in her own religious life and vocation before giving up all of her wealth and starting a bunch of schools and establishing her own religious order uh, at the sort of other end of the spectrum, you might say. You've got someone like Babe Ruth who, um, you know, had a had a very prominent career as a baseball player, obviously, albeit for the Red Sox and the Yankees, uh, but also, you know, literally wrote his name into the, the history of the church in the United States. You know, I mean, I say literally because you can go to, for example, the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception here in D.C., and you can see his name uh, down in the crypt church on on the stones. Like, this is this is a real part of life in the church. And then, Ed, do you know who, do you, did you ever hear of George Strake? No. He he's this guy, this like Texas oil guy. They call him the they call him the Wildcatter. Oh he, oh, I have heard of this guy. He's the he's the one with the Saint Peter's tomb excavation. Yeah, this is the guy who funded. Like if you do the Scavi tour and you see all these unbelievably beautiful and um, profound archaeological realities below Saint Peter's Basilica, the bones of the fisherman himself, um, Saint Peter, and, and all of these things. This is a guy who used. Uh, again, the money that God had given him to give this gift to the church of seeing our history in in the strata of soil underneath the the, the mother church of of uh, of our mother church. It's it's really a very cool thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you are like me and you find stories of. Um, uh, radical generosity that changes the world to be entertaining, educational, and inspirational, you should check out the Holy Donors podcast brought to you by our sponsors, um, Petrus Development. You can check out Holy Donors uh, podcast at holydonors.com. There are, uh, I think, a couple of seasons of just stories of people who have uh, given in ways that have transformed the church and I think um, transformed uh, probably in, in very significant ways their own relationship um, to Christ. And we're back to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. And my guest this week is a, is a jazzed up uh, Ed Condon, my ordinary podcasting partner, but this week just really on fire and full of energy and full of ideas, and I love it. So, uh, Ed, what I want to talk about next, my friend, is this. Um, something a little bit more immediate, which is that, you know... Um, we heard last week, there were sort of um, rumblings last week, and then even um, the USCCB sort of notifying dioceses that there was the potential for some protests and violence at parishes, uh, Catholic parishes across the country. Um, and indeed, there was, um, there, w- there were protests um, at some uh, Catholic parishes, or more frequently at cathedrals across the country. Um, not sort of very many, you know, I don't know what your experience was, but certainly the, uh, the, uh, the small town cop in the parking lot of my local parish was pretty underwhelmed, um, having been brought there to anticipate any protests and not seeing any. So not sort of in, in every parish, not in sort of probably most rural and suburban areas, but in, in, uh, in you know, diocesan cathedrals, there were a handful of them that had protesters who were interrupting mass or who got into sort of conflicts with police or these kinds of things. And a number of parishes have been vandalized and um, more troublingly, the offices of two sort of like political advocacy groups, um, Oregon Right to Life and the Wisconsin Family Association were um, were arsoned, were like firebombed with Molotov cocktails over the weekend. Although in both cases, there were two Molotov cocktails and only one of them took. So I don't know if 500 is a good batting average for a Molotov cocktail. It would seem to me that a Molotov cocktail is not rocket science. Um, uh, nevertheless, we well, have... Well, an abortion isn't medicine, but both of these things are alien to people. <laughs> 
I suppose that's true. Nevertheless, we have seen this, uh, you know, this, there's, there's also been protests, sort of ongoing um, protests at the homes of the Supreme Court justices. So we've seen um, that people, you know, that protests With are White beginning. White House support, by the way, have you noted that? The, the White House yes. has explicitly said they, they encouraged the demonstrations outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes. Since we said that, we should also say that, I, insofar as I know, I think the White House condemned the arson attacks and at least the Wisconsin Family Alliance. I saw that today. So if we're going to say the one, I think we should say the other. Um, yes, the White House is not currently in favor of firebombing. <laughs> I'm just saying, if we're going to say I'm the one, we should say we're going to both sides it on that one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not both sizing it. I'm just, no, no, no. for the no, no, sake no. of accuracy, I feel like... Look, Joe Biden and Jen Psaki, because you my are point not is not to go in the White House direction. Yet. This is my. This is the thing that I want to discuss. Is um, the actual thing that I want to discuss, Edward? Is this uh, something I raised in my in my newsletter? To, we're recording this on Tuesday. Something I raised in my newsletter today, which is um, should ongoing protests per door at parishes? And I think in the lead up to the anticipation of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, there will be more of that. By the way, I don't know if you saw today that the Washington Post has reported that. They've been talking with people close to the court, and the five justice majority and the and the Alito opinion has held. So as of right now, there are five justices. You know, the the, the, the it's good to know people are still leaking. Yeah, right, exactly. But um, but what it is good to know is that the justices seem to be sticking to their to their guns. Um, as we get closer to that, and then when the decision comes, I think we should anticipate that um, we will see sort of widespread demonstrations, and also I think um, political violence as those. Um, Oregon Right to Life and Wisconsin Family Alliance saw already that there, we will see those things in more and more places in this country. And um, church, Catholic churches are seen to be already a focus of at least demonstrations. So what I want to talk about is how, how do you, what do you think is the Christian response to not people sort of entering into mass? Um, we can talk about that next. But first, just like to, uh, if, if the if the cathedral or the parish is surrounded by demonstrators chanting, you know, keep your rosaries off my ovaries or these kinds of things, what, what do you think is the Christian response to this sort of thing? I'm just really curious in how people think about this. Uh, so I've understood the example. This is, they are not attempting to vandalize the building. They're we'll go there next, to... but let's just start okay. with this. Yeah. They are just outside? Uh, yeah. I, I, I would... I mean, I... I simultaneously believe that it is incumbent on uh, the Christian always and everywhere to announce the the love of Christ for all people. Um, I don't for a moment assume that there will be many willing ears in, in such a crowd, but the the mandate to announce the love of God, uh, which we all receive in our baptism, is not mitigated by the hostile or even violent reception of that message that it might receive. In fact, this is the witness of the martyrs. Uh, we are also called to love and pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. And I think such people would definitely fit into that category. I would think so, yes. Um, so, so what do you think that means? I mean, honestly, what, what do you think that means? Because, I, you know, there I are don't, people... I don't think that it means any one particular thing, J.D. I, I think it depends on the the nature of an individual circumstance. If you have a bunch of, you know, the sort of purple-haired, spittle-flecked lunatic children that I often see around D.C. who are all brandishing skateboards and clearly looking for someone to hit, I wouldn't recommend wandering over there with your children after Mass to try and tell them that God loves them. Right. Um, On the other hand, if you have a, a sort of silent line of people holding signs or chanting but are, you know, worked up but not visibly aggressive, 
then yeah, I think attempting to talk to them is a perfectly uh, reasonable and right response. Um, I, again, all of this depends on circumstance. I'm wary of giving a blanket answer because you know I, I've never seen two because demonstrations. Because you don't want to say one thing that you think should happen and then get sued when it goes goes awry. Believe me, I get you. Um, no, but I too have seen things. Uh, I, I too have seen sort of a diversity of things. But I, I, I've been wondering about it simply because I've seen so many different sort of approaches to this over the past week. You know, um, in terms of pe- sort of people saying, "Well, if protesters come to this parish and you know, are protesting outside, we ought to um, uh, we ought to sort of try to welcome them." And then some people who are, I think, less. Um, romantic about the whole thing sort of um, saying well we ought to make sure that we have the police here maybe those things aren't mutually exclusive but there does seem to be sort of not one clear sense of this is the christian response to this thing i i I think that those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive i mean i i have to admit that um the reason i say it's a question of prudential judgment for individuals in individual cases is i have never seen a pro-abortion gathering public gathering or demonstration that didn't have the whiff of hyperaggression and and sort of violence lurking in it. I just I I haven't. Whether it's um, groups of uh, what we'll call elderly people, those over say fifty five for a round number, uh, with a predisposition to hurling extremely profane uh, insults and words at um, people as they pass by, or uh, you know younger people who seem disposed to throw water bottles and things like that in addition to words. So I, you know, I, I, again, I I think, is there some Christian obligation to attempt to reach these people with the gospel? Yes. Do I think it will be met with violence and hatred? Yes. Do I think that the likelihood of the gospel message being met with violence and hatred, excuses the church from its obligation to attempt to deliver the good news? No. Um, but if we're talking specifically about circumstances outside of parishes after Sunday mass, where people are coming and going with their families and small children, there's a prudential right. judgment there. Yeah, I, I totally and completely agree. I think you've said that well. Um, when protesters have entered the mass, it is a different thing. And, you know, it's kind of funny because there it's so much clearer. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of funny, the idea that um, sort of uh, all are welcome to the mass itself is an interesting sort of development of sort of Catholic liturgical theology, isn't it? Well, no, it's not so much an interesting development as a heresy, J.D. It's why the USCCB banned that hymn. Uh, say more, because I think you may be saying something I'm not. Okay, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the the hymn All Are Welcome was put on a USCCB list of uh, don't things that list, should... But I'm not sure what you're saying is the heresy. Well, okay, heresy is a strong word. Oh, yeah, okay, it, okay. Heresies we're going to talk is, about heresies in a little bit, so that's okay. what I want to make Heresy, sure I, I was speaking rhetorically, and I apologize. I should, not have, I should not have used the H word for anything other than its literal legal meaning. <laughs> well, it's because I wanted you to talk about, I mean, there's this, you know, people are talking about this thing of like, well, what should we do if protesters come into the mass? And, you know, well, you I think it's throw pretty them clear out. that you should throw people out who, who come in to protest and disrupt the, the Holy yeah, Sacrifice uh, of the Mass. I think we both Knights of Columbus that. guys like to prance about the, with swords. You can get them out, they're buddy. Ready for it. You know, yeah, do something. I, I, think it's, I think you and I are both in agreement that if protesters come into the mass, you should get them out. I think there are people who are say who would say like, well, you know, but everyone's welcome to the mass or something like that. And it's not and that's, true. It, well, that's what I wanted you to talk about in, specifically you, because you translated a book a few years ago about the early church fathers and you know a thing or two about patristics. So I wanted you to talk about sort of who was welcome to the mass in the early church. 
That is a, that is a you have set me up for failure in an I have incredible not. way. I have not. I, and you first thought of that all, you asserted a number of false things. You thought I, that your rhetorical traps were uh, were were the real the real setup of the day. I did not translate a book a few years ago on anything of the subject. I produced a modest volume of the quotable fathers on death, judgment, heaven, and hell, available from Catholic University of America Press. You, you, you um, did something. You did something. I did a thing. Um, so I have read some. Large I mean, we've all read a little bit of the fathers, but I'm, yeah. I, you and I think no. are well informed about the liturgical practices. The mass of the is early for the church. faithful. The mass is a gathering of the church, the ecclesia, the elect. It Which is, is not... why I mean we have this thing that happens now for RCA candidates who sort of leave ahead of the liturgy Extra of the Eucharist. But it's a, it's a, it's um it's evocative of of the practices of the early church with regard to the liturgy. Is it not? Yes, that the idea is that those who are unbaptized or uninitiated into the church may not even be present for the consecration of the sacred species. So deep and sacred is the mystery. And this is no longer um, uh, this is no longer the praxis of the church with regard to attendance at Holy Mass, but it does, I think, point to the reality that the, um, the, the sacredness and profundity of the thing is to be preserved um, over and above all other things, because worship is a, a, the source and summit of the Christian life. And, and yes, the, the, yeah. the true presence of the Eucharist is not a publicity stunt. It is right. not um, there. There is. Uh, you have mentioned this before on another when we discuss another topic, which is the the Eucharistic, uh, the year the year of the Eucharist, the Eucharistic jamboree. I forget the its official Eucharistic title. Revival. The Eucharistic revival. Thank you. Um, that the sort of uh, the tension between those who who would like to take this opportunity to heighten awareness of and devotion to the sacred species and those who prefer to employ sl- slogans as well. We are Eucharist, and right. it is not true. We are not <laughs> Eucharist. The Eucharist is the Eucharist. We are the congregation. We are the church. We are those there to render due praise, worship, and thanksgiving for the miracle of the Eucharist. So there should be no. So there should be no reticence. I think there should be no reticence. And 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 please God, I'm not aware that there has been. Although I think this is the sort of thing that people talk. about. There should be no reticence to ensure like the sacredness of the no, holy mass. Let me let me let me offer what there will be. There won't be any reticence in a in a particular instance of people to throw demonstrators out of the mass if they attempt to disrupt the celebration of the Eucharist. But you will get some clucking, finger wagging tedious old trout in on in the pages of one or other quasi pseudo Catholic publications. Well, the Christian thing to do would have been to prayerfully welcome them and engage them and listen to their very valid point of view about why vacuuming babies brains out of their skulls in utero is actually a matter of environmental justice. (laughs) I can write the headline for you, buddy. I know exactly how it'll be phrased. Yeah. Gosh, are we, it oh, will not be a. There's not a question. Exhortation in, to an exhortation yeah. to greater dialogue with those. Oh, it won't who would be. Like yeah, the, but it won't be a question of anyone on the ground in one of these positions actually saying no. well, maybe we shouldn't do this. It'll be someone trying to take the moral high ground on people who are defending the sacred species yeah. from blasphemy. I don't think a pastor has any doubt that if someone tries to um, to interrupt the holy sacrifice of the mass, he has an obligation to preserve the sanctity of the thing. I don't think a. I don't think a pastor um, has any doubt about that at all. But I do think you're right that there will be sort of the commentary at who want to put their own odd and peculiar glosses on the whole to do. And it's and very they'll probably try and explain why Vatican II didn't actually say that the Eucharist was the source and summit of um, it's, Christian it's, life. But it's very weird because, um, look, these demonstrators going into these churches in San Francisco and Los Angeles and doing this interpretive dance stuff outside of New York, uh, I, I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, but this... 
um, this is the beginning of what will be, I think, a long um, disentanglement uh, of ca- from Catholics for Catholics in American life or disenfranchisement of Catholics in American life. This is not, a f- I do not think this is a flash in the pan. I think it will be an, uh, a sort of ongoing um, and largely publicly sanctioned um, diminishment of Catholics in ordinary public life and disparaging of the, you know, of the, of the practices of Catholics and the sacrifice of the mass. And I think it's funny because this is indeed the moment. Why am I asking what the Christian response is to people outside the church? Why am I asking what the Christian response is to people inside the church? Because like, this is, this is the beginning of um, a genuine sort of period in which we will have to experience Christianity in a different way and respond to um, much more social atomization or isolation or social persecution than we had before. And I'm not sort of the, the stupid thing to do is to romanticize that the stupid thing to do is to sort of glorify that and say like, yeah, bring it on and let's cut down these secularists with the sort. No, um, the, the really serious discernment is to figure out what it means to be, um, the people of God in a society which is sort of which will who, whose fringe elements, but with uh, with with relatively sort of limited repercussions, whose fringe elements will persecute the church in her sacred worship. That's not a small thing. No, it isn't a small thing, and it will it, churches will continue to be targets in all this. But actually, it will it will move swiftly to individuals who will become targets. JD, in the same way that uh, do you remember there was a time after the spotlight scandals were priests and clerics would be accosted in the street and spat at and jeered at. Yeah. And, and I think like, a lot of our listeners who are clerics, are, well, it's, you know, it's not, it is not unfamiliar for a cleric in 2018 in an airport or otherwise to be called a pedophile. It's, it, it, yeah. he's, he's experienced that or tw- yes. 2018, what year is it? 2022. He, he has experienced that, you know, quite the Freudian slip in your mind. We're still living 2018, aren't we? <laughs> My point is, yeah, I know. Right. My point is it is not, it is not unfamiliar for a cleric to experience the, that sort no, of No, and it response. will be in it will become a more familiar experience in in the wake of a supreme court decision and equally true or perhaps even worse for religious sisters whose safety I genuinely fear for there are many wonderful um religious sisters in in my part of the DC area and I see them all the time I see them walking around and I do fear for them I do fear that they will become targets uh for aggressive behavior in the street because um that that is the tone and timber of the these pro-abortion activists that i have seen whom i also see around the city and in the street um and actually you know you said what is the christian response to all of this and i think this is this is an important um this is an important thing to consider is i'm always struck when i see footage of demonstration and counter-demonstration uh, around the issue of abortion, often in front of the Supreme Court, but in other places, um, the, the aspect of the two sides, that one side is, I'm sorry, visibly unhinged and full of violence and rage, and the other side is not. The other side is genuine, is most often um, attempting friendly engagement or at least standing there in uh, an aspect of prayer and not um, just at the US, not just in a, with regard to abortion. I saw outside of the USCCB meeting in November, uh, this young guy, twenty five, and kind of with an anarchist 
um, shirt and on another anarchist tattoo. He really liked that symbol. Um, just upbraiding this this 65-year-old woman, you know, who was mm-hmm. – um, I think there was a prayer thing about abortion outside of the USCCMA meeting uh, in November. And, you know, there there was sort of this walk and then a prayer thing and some a few bishops went and things like this. But this guy was just – I mean, just eviscerating this – old woman it was grotesque you know what i mean it was, and and, yeah. and, and to, to the cheers of his you know confreres there it was, well and if you don't think that those same confreres who cheer their more insecure and more violence prone or impulsive members to throw a water bottle through a crowd won't at some point in the next few months start cheering them yeah to throw a brick instead they will it, well, will, that, it will happen. That's why I'm asking Ed about the Christian response to these things. Well, because okay, so but the Christian response, to, and, and this is the, I mean, again, accepting that every situation will be different and there are prudential judgments for individuals. One thing I, I think I can say is we can't lose the aspects of love and joy because that right. is that is the evangelical magnet and it is also the proof of the Holy Spirit, that love in the presence of suffering, joy in the presence of persecution, these are the marks of the Christian community. And they aren't just self-referential. It's not just a question of, oh, well, you'll know you're doing a good job if, you know, you can stay happy and loving each other in the midst of all this. But that is the thing that plants the question in people's minds. When people are watching, as they will, on television, on, you know, as they walk by in the streets, groups of people violently protesting for abortion and groups of people joyfully greeting each other that will plant a question of which side do i want to be part of which side do i fundamentally trust which side looks to me to be grounded in rationality in humanity in in all of the things that we say we want even in our modern secular society that to offer a witness of hope and joy is is not an empty slogan. It is a real thing. I, I agree with you, and at the same time, I, I would say that the, the, the that yes, I agree with you. Um, I, but there's a I, I don't just want to have a sort of utilitarian um, uh, sort of uh, rationale for Christian comportment in the face of social persecution. Um, you know, people will notice that we're joyful and they're not, which um, is true, but is is. Look, I I want to know what the Christian response to social persecution is because I want to be a Christian, and um, because I think this is the moment where sort of it becomes clear that we're um, you know um, found in all cities but not identified with the world, as the letter to Diogenes says, which I like so much. Diogenes, um, yeah, thank you. I don't I like so much, but don't know how to pronounce the guy's name. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, this is the moment where those things are put to the test. Like I want, and I I don't want to be romantic about it, and children and all of these things. And look, I have children. I'm not saying, but I want to say like that the Christian um, brings a, a, a bottle of water to the person standing at the doors of the cathedral, you know, spewing obscenities. I, I, I want outside of the cathedral. I, I want to say that because I, I want to think that there is a way in which the, the Christian response is um, that kind of just sort of charitable self-giving. And, um, and I recognize, and lots of people are going to say, I recognize the sort of Prudence is the thing which makes these determinations and these kinds of things. But um, I, I I want to be oriented towards erring towards a, a radical expression of charity in 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 what I perceive to be a moment of of emerging social persecution, rather than I mean the worst thing in the world would be to say like yeah well you know I hope those guys come 
uh, here and we can uh, and and we can sort of uh, push back and and fight him back and these guys like a person shouting outside of the cathedral obscenities about abortion is not the person who we should think yeah I want to debate that guy and prove I I don't think that's it at all I I think what I want at least is to be able to say there's some sort of Christian expression of humility in the face of the in the face of the other just by virtue of their being created in the image and likeness of God which is a Christian response to social persecution and I don't know how that plays out and I recognize that that sounds extremely romantic but that's the kind of Christian I, that I want to be I don't think it's extremely romantic or if it is romantic it, it would become unromantic very quickly y- in the yes, living Yes right exactly the practicality of it is not at all Right. And, um, well, I mean, the practicality is the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah. You can, you can by all means go over there, bring them a cup of coffee, and when they spit on you, you can turn the other cheek. And, and that's that, the kind of Christian I want to be. And I don't know that I have the virtue for that, right? I don't, okay, I don't know but that I don't know that that's a question of what does one do. I think it's pretty clear what one does if that is the kind of Christianity one wants to embrace. It's, it's there for the doing. If, if, you want to, if you want to walk into ridicule and derision for the sake of life and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of being identified with the church, it's there to be done. I, yeah. At the, at the moment when these things emerge, I guess what I want to say is like, I, I want to figure out what it means. Should, should, this, should these things you know, unfold more? What does it mean for the church, the, the body, to sort of wash the feet of the people standing outside of the cathedral screaming obscenities about the church controlling women. You know what I mean? The last thing I want to do is sort of make a mockery of it without considering um, the the genuine sort of Christian moment, which it is. Well, I, maybe I'm mishearing you. <laughs> okay, probably. Um, I'm probably but just it sounds to me like you're asking for a program. No, I'm not asking for a program. I think I'm just saying. Okay, I was like, uh, would you, do you want the permanent no. deacon in the parish to organize a thing for this? Is That, that would uh, be fine. But no, I think what I'm just saying is there is a danger for us to view what is about what is beginning to unfold in the life of the church and in the life of American culture is principally or primarily or only a difference between a sort of partisan or political difference in which we would like our partisan side to win by an earthly metric and therefore to sort of match might for might. Yes, this is what I'm saying, is there will be a great temptation on the part of many Christians, perhaps myself, to match might for might. And I want to f- I, I want to just say that this is a moment for Christians to match might with humility and poverty. Well, the, the, absolutely. That the answer of the the answer of the Christian to persecution, to derision, to all of these things that you're talking about needs to be one of the answer of Christ, which is um, you know the suffering servant. It is the Christian never seeks or or you know welcomes as a as a political opportunity the chance to to meet violence with violence that is right. not that is never the answer of the church um that is for sure uh, so yeah you have to defend the sacred space and the holy sacrifice of the mass and you have to avail yourself of legal means and get a restraining order or you know should it become necessary and these kinds of things all of those things are true um and uh, and a part of the church's identity in life because the sac- sacred worship is a part of the church's identity in, in life but so is the kind of humility that sort of washes the feet of the christian's own persecutor and and i'm just saying these things because i think that um, um the american cultural experience can sometimes lead us to forget those things to think about um, our team, you know, our team and the other team, and that's not quite how I think we're going to need to respond to this. I agree. Although I think it's the sort of people who will turn up outside of a church to hurl paint and insults 
at families as they go in and out of mass are not the kind of people who are going to be reached by any demonstration of Christian humility. No, I, I know. And, and that's yeah. fine, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be offered, because in the offering, others will be reached. Or just born well, because, you know, bearing, suffering, blessed are you when others persecute you for my name, just like bearing the thing well, because that's what it is to be a disciple sure. of the Lord, apart from the potential evangelical potential of it is is an is a part of Christian identity that I don't know what it looks like in each of our own lives. I don't bear wrongs willingly. Uh, please ask my wife. No, I don't bear wrongs willingly. But like, it seems to me that a moment like this is a, a moment of increased exhortation towards precisely that kind of Christian humility and meekness. I, I agree with you, and for all the reasons that you say, but also because it is. It is an important countersign to what seeing the, I yes. having if we do in fact yes. see the overturning of Roe v. Wade, a moment that I again I was not planning on seeing, I was openly skeptical that we would see in any near future. I, I am now ha- having seen that that has happened or is likely to happen. I am now confident that I I will live to see the day when pro-abortion protesters who I do not believe will disappear in my lifetime. But I do hope to live to see the day when pro-abortion protesters are are about as welcome and are viewed by our society as the sort of lunatics from the Westboro Baptist Church who turn up everywhere with their <laughs> signs and you know the. Wouldn't that the, be something? Well, I, I, if the if the if if what is returned to their um, hysteria and violence and uh, again objectively demonic desire then I think there's no other way. I mean, one, if there's one thing Roe v. Wade has taught us, it is that society will get used to almost anything if it's the law. Yeah, that's right. Well said. Okay, so the Christian, what's the Christian response to the situation of um, protesters at the cathedral? There's the question that we talked about. Um, but then the next question is sort of, what is the Christian response to um, Catholics who are doubling down right now, to Catholics in political life who are doubling down right now, to... Um, congressional and executive branch leaders who um, who are Catholics in public life who are arguing, you know, vociferously that um, there need to be new avenues of federal funding for women to travel to states that permit abortion. Should Roe versus Wade be overturned if they're if they live in states that do not permit abortion? That there need to be um, uh, that there needs to be a sort of um, all whole of government response, as President Biden has put it, to um, state laws which prohibit abortion or or dramatically restrict it. That there needs to be um, a sort of all hands-on-deck effort to pass federal legislation that would protect um, legal access to abortion uh, or enshrine legal access to abortion law. Um, as uh, as um, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has called for, like, what is the, the Episcopal response to that is, to my mind, an interesting question because, of course, the bishops spent the entirety of last year talking about this thing called Eucharistic coherence, which is their way of saying communion for, for, for pro-choice politicians and, and other stuff too, right? Um, the, the conversation about Eucharistic coherence, the document ended up being fantastic, really, really good. But much of the conversation, the conversation and debate about Eucharistic coherence was um, uh, Catholic politicians. Yeah, right. Catholic politicians who want to um, uh, uh, promote abortion laws in one form or another, and also other stuff too. Right. I mean, that was the predominant thrust of it. And so now it's kind of interesting um, because we have not seen that I'm aware of any bishop. You know, there were bishops who were arguing strenuously for sacramental discipline of, ca- of pro-choice Catholic politicians advocating for legal protection of abortion. And uh, and and now that this is sort of tripling down, I, I haven't seen any bishops sort of actualizing that argument, exercising, making, ex- you know, acts of sacramental discipline that would, um, that, that would um, r- repair scandal. 
and I wonder if uh, if we will um, or if we won't. To date, for the most too. part, bishops have pushed back on the on the urge to exercise um, sacramental discipline. They have, and it's also led to a great deal of. If you're having the conversation purely in the terms of uh, being in a state of, ob- of obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin, to deploy the language of Canon 915, um, I think that that conversation lends itself to a lot of justified whataboutism. Um, what about other clear mm-hmm. church teachings on, mm-hmm. for example, the sanctity of every human life right. uh, that Catholic politicians or others in public office might be disregarding um, or openly contravening and and so i i have never been and i have told we've gone round and round on this before i have never been particularly of the frame of mind that canon 915 is uh, as a as a general conversational level particularly for extreme cases like speaker pelosi or president biden um i've never been of the opinion that canon 915 is the most useful conversation to be had i think well, i that- want to have the other one but let's just talk about this because i think it's the thing that's most the sort of most live option on the table before we talk about your idea no no but it shouldn't be but this is my point is we've (laughs) as you just got finished saying but we've already had this conversation Mm -hmm. and we know where it goes and it goes nowhere well except okay so what are the dioceses where pro-abortion politicians have been prohibited from the reception of holy communion illinois springfield illinois yeah. That's it. That's it. Right. For Which all the talk. Mike I mean, Madigan, a, it should be in jail. That's um, a really interesting thing. For all the talk last year about this and, and, and us talking, we talked about it a lot last year and covered it and bishops were writing letters back and forth and the Holy See and so much controversy. I mean, for all of that talk, which was effectively a, a huge debate about whether bishops should exercise sacramental discipline in which a, a lot of bishops said, yes, we should exercise sacramental discipline. The and a really lot of other bishops thing, said, if you do, you hate the Pope. Yeah, right, exactly. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> but the really interesting thing about that first group is that it just has not manifested in this moment in which you would think this is the time when this thing is happening in American life. You would think this might be the moment. I'm not sort of – I'm just saying that there's a there's a disparity there in terms of what we have seen thus far between the rhetoric of 2021 and the um, action or lack there of 2022 that is worth noting. You are in the politest way possible suggesting that a number – Where's the of, beef? You are you, – yes, exactly. You are saying there is all mouth, no trousers uh, is this conversation. <laughs> I've not heard that particular criticism. But my point is – you know, my point is I, – I, what I find interesting about it is, um, look, it is the sermon of a bishop whether or not he's going to sort of exercise this prerogative of, of sacramental discipline. But you sure had a whole heck of a lot of them lining up at the microphone to say that they ought. Or one of the debates was on Zoom, so pressing the little hand raise button to say that they ought relative to sort of what you are now seeing. And maybe bishops are preparing it, working on it, whatever. But I suspect that bishops are watching Supreme Court justices' houses being protested and wondering if the right thing to do is to do the thing they said was the right thing to do. I don't think that the... Maybe I'm wrong, but um, it is not my impression or expectation that any bishop who uh, feels strongly that the imposition of sacramental discipline on a Catholic in public life... uh, There have been others, by the way, not just Springfield, Illinois. There was uh, the Diocese of Las Cruces, New Mexico, I think, was oh, was basically yeah, yeah. forced into doing it That's because right. there was one Catholic state Congress, state senator state representative who who basically, as I recall, the story stalked the bishop from parish to parish, saying, "I absolutely believe in a woman's right to. I absolutely believe abortion is great. I think it's wonderful. Are you can excommunicate me. Are you going to do it? Are you going to deny me communion? Are you going to do it? You know, like literally, physically that was stalked also. You know, it. what's interesting is that was also happening in L, um, a 
with no, the, a, a congressman from Los Angeles said, "Yeah, I dare you." Yeah, Charles yeah. Richard Goldstein, a tweet. I mean, right. you know, because no one in California government is braver than a tweet. Um, but anyway, separate issue. Uh, no, I don't. I, it's not my expectation that any bishop who genuinely believes that sacramental discipline should be deployed for the benefit of the souls of any Catholics in political office who are obviously promoting and championing and doubling down and trying to advance the cause of legal abortion in this country because they fear the mob. I Maybe that's true, but it's not my sense of them. I think they fear... Um, they fear fire from their brother bishops. They fear that if I dare to uh, do what I think is not just my Episcopal duty, my pastoral responsibility for the good of souls, which Pope Francis has repeatedly said, the dereliction by bishops of imposing the penal law of the church for the good of souls constitutes a harm and has wrought terrible scandal yeah, and mm-hmm. harm on the body of the church. Pope Francis that, that wrote is what that. the Holy Father wrote. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nevertheless, I think there are a sizable body of bishops in the USCCB who say, I would like to, but if I do, some of my brother bishops are going to turn around and denounce me. Mm -hmm. They will go on cable news. They will go to the newspapers. They will be quoted from, they will quote themselves in the pulpit and they will denounce me as a hard hearted, pharisaical, MAGA, politically intervening, ultra conservative. And then they'll trash me to the nuncio. And then who knows, maybe I'll just get a phone call one day demanding my resignation. That's what I think. I don't yeah. think they're afraid of a bunch of kids with purple hair showing up no, outside I think their you're house. Right. I, think they're con- I think that they're concerned that they'll be high and dry in the life of the church or, or that they won't. And it, not even that they'll necessarily get sort of a call demanding their resignation, although that's a possibility. I think they may well be concerned that their case, their special faculties cases won't get back from Rome or their requested coadjutor won't come. You know, I mean, I think it's entirely possible that you know, bishops may just be concerned that they'll gum up the works in Rome in one form or another, or, um, you know, and, 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 and we'll be alone in the church. And I get it. I mean, I think it's a legitimate, I, I get, I get it. I get the genuine apprehension to say, I don't want to do a thing in which I'm not going to be backed up and supported in the life of the church or in which I'm going to face, you know, a sort of consequence for that. But at the same time, this is the sort of conversation, the, the, the sort of conversation that was happening a year ago right now was um, if this is the right thing to do, we have to do it, whether it's popular or not. And I don't know if that's as long as someone else does it first. Well, I mean, I don't know. It'll be interesting. You know, I I don't want to be too hard on the bishops here, but these are the bishops who started this conversation last year. As a friend of mine recently said, where's the beef? (laughs) But you think, Ed, you think that this conversation about Canon 915, this is going to be where we end. It's a red herring. You think this conversation about Canon 915, which says that um, those who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion, is a red herring and should not be the thing which should be discussed when it comes to politicos, uh, Catholic politicos who support um, legal protection for abortion. At least not those of a certain stature and position You think another Canon thing should be discussed. There are, um, when a politician, for example, states repeatedly, actually, no, before I outline it, let's just, let's, let's clarify some terms. JD, what is a credenda teaching? A credenda truth is a truth which is to be, devi- to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. All right. And heresy is the... Obstinate, obstinate denial of some truth which is to be... Obstinate denial or doubt of some truth which is to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. What is that? Okay. Can 751? Is that 751? I Something believe so, in, yes. It's in the 750s. Yes. And true or false, the CDF have authoritatively 
enumerated the immorality, the grave immorality of the taking of an innocent human life as a credenda teaching. I, I believe that that is something which is to be believed with divine Catholic faith. Yeah. I'm not interested if it's your opinion. My point is, is this, yes, the CDF I, has yes, said I, that. I, okay. I, yes. It's, okay. it's in a list. The CDF have, okay. have I, written well, that down. I'm, as, taking you for, I'm taking you for your word there. I, right, I, it I seems can, to me that that would be so. I can give you the footnote if you need it, but yes. Um, my, my point is this. Abortion is the grave taking of an innocent human life. This is this is clear in the church's teaching. It has said it over and over and over again. It has written entire documents. It, it this is this is fact. In the mind of the church, abortion is the grave taking of an innocent human life. Yeah, and a that great is moral a, evil, an intrinsic moral yes. evil. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the immorality of the taking of an innocent human life, which includes abortion, mm-hmm. is a credenda teaching. So those who deny or doubt and persevere in doing so, the credential teaching on the grave immorality of the taking of an innocent human life, which includes abortion, are committing an act of heresy. Those who deny obstinately that teaching are committing heresy. Right. So if you have someone saying abortion is a good, a public necessity, a matter of right, a matter of human dignity, these are in terms contradictions of that teaching. You cannot simultaneously hold that something is a grave moral evil and a matter of human dignity. It's not possible. Okay. These are contradictory to repeatedly state the opposite publicly of a credenda teaching of the church is to obstinately persevere in its denial. Okay. So heresy is the obstinate denial of some truth, which is to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. And to articulate the opposite of a truth is to deny it. Okay. Generally speaking, in canonical scholarship... Here we go. No, no, I'm not... Look, I agree that Harris... I agree that abortion is a grave moral evil. I agree that the the immorality of taking an innocent innocent human life is a teaching to be believed with divine and Catholic faith. My question for you is this. Is obstinacy a word with some canonical significance in history, or is it just a word? Because what you're saying, just to bring everyone into the debate, what you're saying is that bishops should declare pro-abortion Catholic politicians to be heretics, or to to have committed the canonical crime of heresy. And my question for you about that is... um, my, my, the reason why I have not lined up on that position, I suppose, is because insofar as I know, obstinacy is a term, uh, a legal term of art in canon law, which requires some engagement it, with the uh, I agree. ecclesiastical authority. I agree. And, but again, I'm not suggesting that any Catholic politician who for the first time ever says, I am pro-abortion, guilty of heresy. I'm not saying that. I'm okay. saying Catholics in particular positions okay. who have been repeatedly admonished by the spiritual leaders of the church and are more than acquainted with the church's teaching on the subject. Because, for example, if you're Joe Biden, you have yourself on camera, I can find the footage, articulated the church's do, teaching. Do you think they have to be at, what, what engagement do you think they need to have with the competent ecclesiastical authority before they would be declared to have committed the canonical delict of heresy? Well, I think they would have to have a competent authority state that they are going against church teaching. Okay. When does the obstinacy happen? After you continue to do it, after you've been told you are going against church teaching. Okay. Do you think they have to be asked 
about the about the precise nature of their position. Do I think, for example, a politician who has repeatedly said that abortion is a human right and abortion is a matter of intrinsic dignity for women has to be asked to clarify if do they you deny think that, that abortion is? Do you think that the taking of an innocent human life is a grave moral evil? Do you think they have to be asked that? I think they have to be asked. Do you think that the taking of an innocent human life in abortion is a grave evil? Um, do you think that the taking of an innocent human life in abortion is a grave moral evil? Do you think they have to be asked that? Yeah, unless they have otherwise repeatedly declared that they do. They have to, right, do not do they have to so. answer in the affirmative in order to be obstinately denying or, de- or doubting. Uh, again, you, I do I'm, not. Well, I'm bo- just asking because you want you 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 seem to be saying that a particular canonical penalty should be applied to them, and I, I just want to think through this from a juridic perspective in terms of the meaning of the words in their text and context. I understand, and I'm saying you are looking to nail this down to getting a person in a room and subjecting them to a judicial inquiry, and such people are not going to turn up for such. Do, do you we think know. that is required? My question is: Do you think that is required for something which? In which there is an impl- – look, if the person said repeatedly, I do not believe that a, that the taking of an innocent human life in abortion is a grave moral evil. If the person said those were – if the person said that repeatedly, um, then I would agree with you. They would have obstinately denied the thing. Um, my question for you is if they if – if that is implicit in what they are saying, does it have to be explicated in your view before they can be declared to have committed the crime of heresy? I, I do not believe that it's implied. Just because they don't use the in terms – Phrase that you are. Well, that's the saying. difference between an explicit admission and an implicit no, admission, you can, right? You, you can say, say something explicitly thing. in different ways, JD. You don't have to repeat the actual text back to someone and and and, and, and provide the explicit a, an manifestation of a phrase is an explicit manifestation of a phrase, is it not? No. If you say that abortion is a good, then if you say you don't that abortion to- is a good. Yes. If you say that abortion is a good, I, I'm. If you say that abortion is a good, I believe that you have. Um, said something which 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 expresses a denial of um uh, uh, of a teaching to be held in uh, with divine and catholic faith. Well, my question for you is what do you have to do for that to become an obstinate denial? To to say it again having been corrected. Not not having having received an inquiry about it but having been corrected. Yeah, having been told that the opposite is true. I think that is I I think it's interesting Ed, because that is that is a very uh, your argument is that um, bishops should My declare argument, your sorry. argument is that bishops should declare Catholic politicians pro-choice Catholic politicians to be heretics if they are repeated advocates for legal protection for abortion and I I find it interesting, and what's interesting to me about it is that there's an intuitive sensibility to it in which many people say yes, and I think most people who are listening to the show prob- right now are probably like, why is J.D. being so persnickety about this, and what is J.D. That's doing? That's not the word and, I'd use. Okay, fine, but the reason is just because – the reason is – I would agree that it seems an intuitive thing, but the reason is because, like, these words in the code, like, do have um, particular meanings, and obstinacy has a particular meaning, and, and it seems to me – and I could be wrong, and I'd be glad for canonists to sort of correct you on that. But it seems to me that your version of expli- uh, uh, of obstinacy is different from the sort of typical canonical tradition I, of no, scholarship with regard to no, that. No, it's not. It's not. So then but how that's come you're the only you're, person I know who's arguing this? I don't think I am the only person you know who's arguing this. And again, you're trying to say I'm 
I suggest that every Catholic politician who says something more than once should be declared by the bishop. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are prominent Catholics in this country who have manifestly committed the canonical delict of heresy by the rejection, the repeated rejection of the church's teaching on the grave immorality of the ending of a human, innocent human life in abortion. And I can put names on them if you'd like, and I can demonstrate to you that not only have they done so in the face of repeated correction and repeated admonition from competent ecclesiastical authority, but they have absolutely rejected that admonition. They have told their bishop to shut up in public, and they have refused to meet with them. <laughs> hold on, hold on, because you're getting just so hot under the collar that you're not being realistic. Because you're being unbelievably obtuse about this. Please tell me the name of the Catholic politician who told their bishop to shut up in public. Nancy Pelosi has frequently said, been said, admonished. Excuse me, Sal, shut up. Nancy no, Pelosi she didn't said say, that. excuse me, then Sal, shut up. Then have this conversation precisely, because the only thing that the law does is bring precision to chaos. And you want the law to satisfy your passions, and good for you, I've got the same passions as you. No, this but is not about this the law. have this conversation precisely. No. Because otherwise I'm it's impossible convers- to engage with you about no, it. No, when it's impossible is to engage so- with you about it if you're going to say things which you know are not true as a matter of hyperbole. How no, can this I possibly is not a have a conversation with you about that? This is not a question <laughs> of hyperbole. Is this radio? I have no idea. No, you're being your usual pain in the ass about this subject because you don't believe that heresy <laughs> actually no exists. no one holds the position that you – I do believe that, that heresy is not true. exists. I Several people hold the position I have. Canonists I know which hold this are the position. Canonists Cardinals of the Catholic Church. Which judges the, of the signature believe Which are this. the canonists who have published on this? I am not here this. to bring other people into our <laughs> argument. You can just bloody well be quiet for a minute and listen to me because you are being such an outrageous I pain in the ass about this. I have listened to you. I've asked you questions that have made you angry. No, and then you have cut me off when I've tried – you said, oh, did she really say that? No. But Nancy Pelosi has stood at the podium on the U.S. Capitol building in the press room and been charged with her with public admonitions issued by her bishop. And she said, I don't care what he says. That's what she said. No, she didn't say shut up, Sal. She said she rejected the legitimate public admonition of her competent oh, local Thank you ordinary. for your precision. I, I appreciate and that. And he has repeatedly said in public that he is invited, repeatedly begged for a meeting with Nancy Pelosi. And she has rejected every single one of those overtures. JD, so that how come is you have everyone's schism? Actually, that's really interesting that you say that because you're saying that he has not, she has not responded to his governing authority. But you don't. What is schism, Ed? Schism, schism is the rejection of communion. The refusal of submission, submission actually, the refusal yes. of submission to the Roman well, pontiff. No, now or, we're getting into a definition of submission because I don't believe that being repeatedly asked to attend a meeting counts in rejection of doing okay, it. So you don't believe schism. that being repeatedly asked to constitute a meeting and not doing it constitutes a refusal of submission to the bishop in communion with the Roman pontiff. You don't no, believe not that unless that, the bishop actually invokes episcopal authority over a layperson so in a way that I'm not familiar with. You don't believe that unless the bishop uses certain procedural elements, you're doing to it again. Exercise his authority. You don't believe that unless the bishop invokes some particular procedural elements to exercise his authority, a particular canonical. A particular canonical crime applies to the situation. So you think that's true for schism, but for heresy, you, you don't think that those procedural things are relevant anymore. So no, I do I think they're ref- relevant. I, 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 don't, I can't refuse to submit to the governance of my diocesan bishop by not attending his meetings, but I can obstinately deny something without the ordinary sort of prerequisites of obstinate denial. No, those are completely separate issues, and you're Why? the one who is not being precise now, because being invited by your proper pastor to attend a meeting is a, is a pastoral function. It's not an issue of governance. You're not rejecting the legitimate governance of your bishop when he makes pastoral overtures when to you he that asks you, you to, When he asks you to meet with him repeatedly. So you're yeah. saying, no, there's a distinction there, right? There's you're a distinction there's between a distinction. pastoral overture and the invocation right. and of so governance under penalty of schism. You're saying there's a distinction yeah. between a formal act of ecclesiastical governance and something you're calling a pastoral overture. Okay, I can accept that. But then when you come back to heresy and I say there is a distinction between a formal inquiry 
and a sort of pastoral correction in a column or something like that. And there's a distinction between an explicit denial and a, and um, and something which is a which is willfully, I, I'm going to concede willfully, I mean, I think that's definitely true, which is sort of willfully nuanced in particular ways. Um, there, you, you think that my canonical precision is a pain in the ass and persnickety, but on schism, you don't. No, Let's I think you're misapplying. Let's talk about apostasy for a minute. Apostasy is... <laughs> Whoa. Okay, everybody, let's just take a break for a second here. You know, this conversation between Ed and I was getting, as you noticed, a little bit heated. Um, and, you know, part of the reason is that this is a conversation that Ed and I have been having in various iterations for a long time, and we're very good friends and journalism partners and work very closely together. But, you know, we have some differences of opinion, and this conversation about Canon 751 is one of those areas where we have differences of opinion. Um also, neither one of us, as you could hear from that conversation, excels um, always in um, the virtues of discourse. And so this conversation got a little bit uh, extra, as the kids might say. So uh, we took a little break, and each of us uh, said a prayer, and I suspect Ed uh, went outside and had a smoke, and then uh, we gave it another go. So I promise the next one... Uh, will not be quite so much, but we think there are some elements of this conversation that are worth um, hearing. So without further ado, here's Canon 751, take two. But However, you think, Ed, you think that I, this conversation I, about Canon 915, this is going to be where we end. This it's is, a red herring. You think this conversation about Canon 915, which says that um, those who obstinately persevere and manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion, is a red herring and should not be the thing which should be discussed when it comes to politicos, uh, Catholic politicos who support um, legal protection for abortion. You At think least that not another, those of a certain stature and position You think power. another canon yes. thing should be discussed. I, I do. I think that 915 is absolutely an appropriate thing to discuss when talking about um, the individual and often internal disposition of, of some Catholics and certainly in gray areas for people who've made ambiguous statements or whatever else. But I do think Catholics in particular situations and positions of authority uh, who are, for example, marshalling whole government responses to more deeply entrench access to abortion across the country or ensuring that legislation um, to entrench abortion is making it to the floor of the house. I do believe that they they are subject to a completely different category of legal consideration, and one that doesn't admit of what I've already said is the the justified sort of well, what about questions that get raised when we're talking solely about Canon nine fifteen? And what is that? That is the delict of heresy, JD. That is the H word, oh, heresy. The old delict Canon seven fifty one. Uh, a heretic, if I remember correctly. From Canon 751, heresy is the obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism, so it pertains to Catholic, of some truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. The obstinate denial or obstinate doubt after the reception of baptism of some truth which is to be believed by divine and Catholic faith. And Ed, you have long argued, um, you have long argued that uh, pro-choice Catholic politicians who advocate for the legal protection of abortion um, could, could be declared to have committed the canonical crime of heresy. Why do you argue that? I, I would I would want to qualify that statement. It's very it's very broad. I've argued that some. Okay. I made this argument first, and most in particular with regard to New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, former New York Governor. He, okay. He landed himself in a spot of bother because he's so pro woman. Um, <laughs> he's no longer the governor of New York. God rest him. Um, but I first made this argument with regard to Cuomo and the passage of the New York Abortion Act because, as I argued at the time, he had gone beyond mere 
advocacy of a position and his executive fiat um, was a particular action from which uh, certain absolute beliefs could be inferred. And he'd had a particular uh, series of exchanges with uh, his own bishops who had warned him and had told him that abortion was a grave moral evil and the taking uh, of an innocent human life, the grave immorality of which is defined by the church as a credenda teaching. Okay, but heresy is about... So, so heresy is about... Heresy, as I think is typically thought of, is, if you will, a speech crime. Obstinate denial or obstinate doubt is sort of manifested denial of a particular doctrine of Catholic teaching or calling into doubt a doctrine and established teaching of the Catholic Church. So if I say, if I say, uh, you know, you really can't be sure that um, the uh, you, you really can't be sure that there are three members of the Holy Trinity. There could be four. There could be seven. You know, and if if I say that repeatedly, that's a kind of ops, That's a kind of doubt. Um, or if I say there are seven members of the Blessed Trinity, which at that point would be a septinity, um, um, or six members of the Blessed Trinity, at that point it would be a sexinity. Um, uh, if I say that, then I am denying or calling into doubt some teaching of the Catholic faith. But it, it's a, there's an ex, it seems to me that there's an explicit sort of repudiation of some settled Catholic teaching, which is clarified as a credended teaching of the Church. Is that not so? That is correct. But the Church has clarified through the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith that amongst those teachings that are to be believed— with divine and Catholic faith is the grave immorality of the taking of an innocent human life. And the same congregation has repeatedly defined abortion as the taking, the of, taking an of an innocent human life. human life. So if I said abortion is a moral good, I would be denying some teaching of the of the faith. No? Yes. Okay. And so it's your view that pro-choice politicians, Catholic politicians who say something like abortion is a moral good. Um, abortion is a sacred right. Abortion is... Are there Catholic, pro-choice Catholic politicians who say abortion is a sacred right? Nancy Pelosi has said quite famously that when speaking of abortion, you are on sacred ground. About the issue. Yes. She's referred to abortion as a sacred issue. She has referred to the... So I would agree that abortion is a sacred issue. Wouldn't you? Yes, but not in the way that she does, J.D. Okay. In fact, the exact opposite way. <laughs> right. But I, I guess that's my point is you have long argued that pro-choice Catholic politicians who are, are in some position of influence could be declared to have committed the canonical crime of heresy because they say things which seem to, in your mind, implicitly repudiate Catholic doctrine. Am I, is, am I being fair to you there? I, I think you're being fair, but are you, are you really suggesting that the kind of statements that have been coming out of our political leaders saying that uh, abortion is, a, is effectively a moral good are, do not constitute the denial that it is the, the, an immoral taking of an innocent human life? I mean, I, I, I don't know that there's no, any credible if, or no, coherent— No, if someone were to say abortion is a moral good. But when I said, are there Catholic politicians who have said abortion is a moral good, you shifted to, no, there are Catholic politicians who have said abortion is a sacred right. And then when I said, are there Catholic politicians who have said abortion is a sacred right, you said, yeah, there are Catholic politicians who have said abortion is treading on sacred ground. And so what I'm getting at here, Ed, is doesn't— the crime of heresy have to be explicit rather than a penumbra of suggestion? I mean, I don't think it's right to make penumbras of suggestion about abortion. I think it's morally wrong. But is that when does that moral wrongness of being uh, of being uh, cheeky or obscure or vague in one's beliefs, when does that moral wrongness cross the territory into heresy? Because it seems to me that your position is that one can cross the, ter- the line into heresy fairly quickly. Um, in the sort of uh, in sort of a, a in sort of a scale of um, vagary or obscurity. Uh, well, I think that when you make 
a repeated public case that abortion is a is a just right for a right to be just it must be moral and that i mean to 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 defend the justice of a thing to defend uh, the right to a thing is to assert that it is not immoral okay what if ha- a pro-choice catholic politician says and i'm just trying to understand this i'm not trying to defend a catholic, pro-choice catholic politician please allow me to be clear about that what if a pro-choice catholic politician says yeah I, my religion says that abortion is wrong and i'm not disputing that but i don't think it should be against the law um is does that constitute heresy? No, I think you could absolutely make the argument there because at least it's an, the argument again, for heresy. You think that a, such yeah, a person well, could I mean, be? The, 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 I'd want to go back and check the the CDF declarations on the subject of abortion and the the absolute imperative on any legal protection for abortion being itself a grave moral evil. I'd, I'd want to go and check the fine print of that. Yeah, but I, I don't think, know that you have to hold as a matter of. Um, Doctrine that that abortion has to be legal. I no, mean, I don't it is know definitely do a Tenende truth. The church has taught no, for that sure. abortion has to be legal. Right. Um, if you can, if you can find, and I'm confident that you can, for Catholic politicians of certain ranks in this country, them saying that they believe contrary to what the church believes on abortion, which is that it is the grave and immoral taking of an innocent human life, and again, credential teaching. Um, yeah, I do believe if they say that repeatedly. And have even in, through their own past public statements articulated repeatedly that they are aware of the church's teaching on this. Um, and in the case of President Biden, he has not only said that he's aware it's a teaching; he said he's aware it's a defide teaching. He's aware of the level of teaching that the church teaches and that he's going against. I well, mean, I I would prefer it if he'd said credenda rather than defide, but I mean, the he's he's aware. <laughs> you can't argue so, with that. So Biden has said. Yes, I'm aware that the Catholic Church teaches that abortion is a grave moral evil, and I disagree. Uh, Joe Biden has in the past articulated what is, in his words, a de fide teaching of his church, which is that human life begins at conception and abortion is the ending of an innocent human life. He has, subsequent to that moment, and he's done all this on camera at different times, by the way, um, he has subsequent to that said that Roe v. Wade needs to be entrenched in federal land to its fullest extent. He has called abortion a right. Okay. And and that and is, he has gone back to reference his Catholic faith and what the church teaching and has said, this I don't agree. He said that. And his proper bishop, Cardinal Wilton Gregory, has told the National Press Club. That he's not at, aligned with Catholic teaching there, is what yeah. Gregory said. Yeah. Here's, I come from a canonical school of thought, Ed, that, or I have trained in a canonical school of thought, Ed, that says that... Um, the, that 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 the crime of heresy, the canonical crime of heresy, um, because it requires this obstinate denial, requires that a bishop or a competent ecclesiastical authority, when a person is, has not said explicitly, I believe there are seven members of the Holy Trinity, but said things which would suggest as much. If a person said, the Blessed Mother ought to be venerated in the same way that Jesus is venerated, right? That, that the diocesan bishop, if the person hasn't said an explicit you know, immediate denial of, of Catholic teaching has an obligation to make a sort of formal inquiry as to the limit of the person's speech. Th- that's the sort of canonical school of training from which I come. And so therefore, I think that before a diocesan bishop could could I, could identify a, a Catholic politician as a heretic, there have to be some process of sort of um, in, inquiry of clarification as to, do you deny that um, uh, abortion is a grave moral evil? Or do you hold that abortion is uh, a moral action or can be a moral action? There would have to be some sort of line of inquiry, but y- you don't hold that. Is that correct? I, I, I hold that that is, that should be the presumption. But yes, I think it's a presumption that can yield to the crushing weight of constant public 
statements from a person that make manifest what they are saying. Um, also, you have to factor into the possible non-cooperation. I mean, you're, you're supposing a sort of grand world where a bishop or archbishop might be able to write to one of their flock and invite them to repeated pastoral meetings and that they would accept and come and participate in such a clarifying dialogue as you are proposing, which I do not believe that they would do in every case. In fact, I think in very few cases would they agree to attend such meetings or respond positively to pastoral overtures, however um, generously phrased they might be. And more to the point, the the practice of the church in dealing with the big three delicts, heresy, apostasy, and schism, is that you can be found guilty for doing it by virtue of external actions. You don't have to say, I you know, Fred Barker on X date do solemnly declare that I believe there to be seven persons to the Trinity uh, over and against whatever the church may hold on this because they're fools and I know better. But Luther That's was necessary. invited to a kind of inquiry, right? To determine if his sure. teachings were consistent with the teachings of the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that it's not an option. And again, I'm not saying that it isn't the presumption. I'm saying that that's a presumption that can yield. It's a process that can be, and you know this as well as I do, that you can proceed with an extrajudicial process where the weight of proofs are such that you don't need anything else. And for example, the CDF has in the past uh, made it perfectly clear that it is possible to convict and declare a person guilty of the delict of apostasy, which is the total repudiation yeah, the total of every repudiation of the Christian faith. Absolutely, every article of the faith, simply by the act of ascribing themselves to the Communist Party, because the Communist Party is de facto and de jure an atheist organization. It proposes that there is no God and holds that as a central belief. And therefore, for a Catholic to ascribe himself to the Communist Party, they are in so doing repudiating the entire catholic faith and this is this is the jurisprudence of the cdf i i think that's really interesting that is not uh i I think that's really there's an excellent work on that if you would if you would care to if you would care to read about the canonico juridical status of a communist i can recommend um father richard j murray omi's uh, licentiate thesis on the subject it was very very good i'd like to i'd like to read that because because the, t- the disagreement between us, which at times has gotten quite heated, right now I think we're keeping it pretty civilized, but at times this disagreement between us has gotten quite heated, is that I tend to think that before declaring a person a heretic, there needs to be um, an ex- uh, explicit clarity, or at least the opportunity for explicit clarity about what precisely it is that they hold. And that, that um, vagaries and penumbras rarely, you know, and, and willfully shaded language as sort of um, as problematic as that is and as scandalous as that is and as, um, as, um, as cowardly even as that is, um, while, while meriting, uh, obviously, the potential for sacramental discipline, as you just heard me be very clear about, um, I, I tend to think that heresy, the crime of heresy, requires something um, more concrete in order to be declared. You tend not to. Um, I would be interested to hear from other canonists who listen to the show about when they think it is possible to declare that the delict of heresy has been committed, because I find this a really fascinating point of, of, of different emphases between us. Well, I, I think you are <laughs> looking for a um, – I, I think you are seeking to to say that there is a particular standard or process that can that must play in every case of heresy. Because I think obstinacy is a term of art that requires – I agree that, that obstinacy that is a term of art. conveys I, a kind of engagement. I don't disagree with that. But um, the way in which heresy can – be more or less obvious and require more or less additional proofs or clarification depends entirely on the article of faith that is being denied or doubted. Um, you know, I 
I would not have confidence in my own ability to discuss Trinitarian theology for any length of time without risking um, falling foul of some particular nuance because I'm simply not trained that in that But that falling sort of foul would not constitute a heresy, a no, the crime of heresy, right? No, indeed, because, again, there's obstinacy and everything else. no one and expects again, you to know anything about that. No, indeed. Um, but, again, uh, there is a difference between the level of knowledge that is expected of a person, the level of clarity one is expected to have on what the church does teach and what is outside of that, and the level of all sorts of other things to do with complex theological positions that is entirely different from, do you believe in that it is immoral to end an innocent human life through abortion? That is a totally different thing. That is, well, here's that the doesn't funny thing, not is admit that... anything like the kind of, uh, I'm not sure this is a very gray area. I no, mean, no, they've no, called no, totally. it a human right. But I don't here's know the if thing. that means I, they think I it's think, good or not. I, I just don't know what to do with this fact. I, I agree with you that uh, pro-choice Catholic politicians like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi say a lot of things which are, which, which, um, defy that doctrinal teaching of the church. And yet, what I don't know what to do with is, I think if you ask them, um, do you hold, this is what I don't know what to do with about the whole thing. Do you hold that, I think if their bishop asked them, do you hold that the taking of an innocent life is a grave moral evil? I would think they'd say, yes, I just can't impose that on other people. And the wrongness is in that. The wrongness is in their understanding of sort of the universal dictates of morality or something like that. Um, or the wrongness is just in their sort of general um opportunism and political craftsmanship, whatever, you know, the wrongness is there. I, I, but I, but the weird thing is, I think that if you ask them, if they deny that teaching, they would say no. And so then it's sort of like you're asking on a, on a sort of thought or speech crime, their speech both supports and belies the declaration of the penalty. And so does the bishop make a judgment there? I mean, could the bishop ask them, do you deny this? And they say, no, I don't deny that. And then he still declare them a heretic. Well, so look, I, I, you are, I would have, I would have previously agreed with you about the example, for example, Joe Biden, who has previously held the position that I know what the church teaches, I believe what the church teaches, I just won't impose it on others, and therefore I think abortion should be legal or whatever. Right, right. That used to be his position, but he has publicly abjured that. Yeah. And that's what flipped me on him yeah. was, yeah, Joe Biden running for vice president. That was the line he took. And I would not have called that heresy. I Which would have said this. Cowardly, there's a, immoral, scandalous. Also, right. and definitely a disciplinary matter and incredibly imperiling for his soul and everything else. But I would not have called it heresy. But again, he's publicly abjured that. He has said the church teaches one thing and I believe another. Well, that gets that that. That, I don't. I, I don't think, know what else to do. With no, that. I agree with you. I, I think that would get you there. The difficulty that I've had and is Cardinal Gregory, his proper pastor, has, has said, said he's not with Catholic teaching on this. Now he hasn't yeah. said he's. What he hasn't said is he's absolutely denied. But I don't think Cardinal Gregory would have that language at his fingertips. Well, he's I, I, again, I find it hard to believe that Cardinal. I, I wouldn't expect Cardinal Gregory to come out and say, "Oh, he's obstinate." I wouldn't expect Cardinal Gregory is going to declare Joe Biden a heretic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, but that to one side, I don't believe it's possible that Cardinal Gregory has met with Joe Biden many times and discussed issues of uh, the church's priorities and things, including abortion, which, according to both of them, they have, and, da, 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 and then come out of the National Press Club and said, "And he, he's you know clearly outside of church teaching on this," and not be able to call that obstinate. Like I don't know what else you and need. I, to I do. hear you. I, it's it's interesting to me because I think a speech crime is an unusual thing, and I don't think I don't know a it's lot. It's not about a crime of speech, J.D. It's a crime of belief. No. Actually, that's not right. The obstinate denial or doubt, but the doubt is a manifested doubt, right? The obstinacy right, indicates that to you. So, again, does it so have if, to be speech? So can I internally hold so can I internally hold a heresy not manifested to someone and be and have be declared to have committed the crime of heresy? Well, okay, so now we're talking about what speech. Because I, I what so I it's was a crime saying of, was, it's a crime of public manifestation, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, so yes, it's, it's a crime of public crime of, manifestation. It's a crime of public but, manifestation, but, yes. 
but um, but the, but this is my point. The you prosecution can have public manifestation. Public manifestation gets tricky. I think it does get tricky. But again, you can publicly manifest an interior belief. And again, this is present in penal jurisprudence and praxis going back over in different crimes. And you can manifest all that, but it doesn't have to be explicit speech. You don't have to be asked, well, are you denying there are three persons in the Trinity? Yes. You know, the, 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 what is necessary for someone to commit the delict of heresy is not that you basically invite the conviction by affirming it and making a manifestation of conscience. That is, that, that's not true. What is necessary for a conviction upon uh, a delict of heresy is not that you have to make a public manifestation of conscience in a juridical form. That's nonsense. And you, you know as well as I do, you can't compel it. <laughs> A public manifestation you can't of conscience. public manifestation of conscience. So you make can't it a, make it the condition of, con- of a conviction. No, it's I not appreciate, possible. I appreciate what you're saying, but um, again, I think it gets tricky when they when the man, the denial of a particular credende teaching is implicit in what you are saying, but you are being coward, you are being cowardly and not making it explicit. I think that is where I'm not sure that it is easy to to um, to prosecute a, a, a speech or action or manifestation crime. Oh, I, I'm not claiming it's easy. I'm just saying that if you have a 30-year track record, it, it gets easier. I hear you. I will be interested. I, I need to do some more homework on this. I think you need to do some more homework on this, too. I know that really pissed you off. But I think you. I think we both could benefit from doing starting some more. With, I'll be starting with Father Murphy. I'll start with Father Murphy. But you'll do some homework on this. I'll do some homework on this. And I would be genuinely interested to hear from our canonist listeners about what, what they think the limits of the canonical crime of heresy are. But in the meantime, the U.S. bishops, Ed, have asked Catholics, all Catholics, this Friday to do what? Uh, to pray, J.D., to pray the rosary. To pray the rosary for the, uh, uh, for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, for peace in our country, for, to, for the building of a culture of life, and, um, and for all people who uh, are in a situation of a crisis pregnancy or, or um, other situation of manifest grave need. So I'll be doing that. How about you? Uh, I will certainly be doing that. Well, everybody, this episode of The Pillar Podcast was brought to you by The Holy Donors Podcast, a new podcast from Petrus Development, bringing you stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. Check out The Holy Donors Podcast at holydonors.com. And The Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. And this special episode of the Pillar Podcast was all about Roe versus Wade, but we'll be back at the end of this week with more news on the life of the church and great Catholic conversation. 